So, uh, I'm excited. We have, for those of you who are new here, uh, we are going through the series, through a series on the books of Samuel, First and Second Samuel, and today we get to look at Samuel 6. I got to tell you, um, this chapter might be my favorite chapter that I've prepped so far. Um, and so I'm going to kill, I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm not, not to put pressure in myself, right? No, I'm kidding. Um, no, but seriously, uh, it's not, I mean, it's not about the message. It's about what it's pointing to. And that is a glorified God. And I want us to pay attention to that. Uh, but anyways, uh, you might be surprised to learn that I did not go to the gym. I know, Shocking. I, uh, I am not a gym guy. I went to the gym for a little while. Uh, the gym happened to be in the same floor as the, as the foot court at the mall. And let's just say that it did not work out very well for me. But anyways, I am not a gym guy. Uh, and I should be. Uh, but, you know, it would be hypocritical of me to pretend that I am. Uh, but anyways, uh, you don't need to go to the gym to know... Uh, that there's a kind of guy that can be found at the gym. You've seen him, you know, and this guy that loves to work out, but doesn't precisely love to, you know, you know, he, he skips leg day quite often, you know, and so they end up being massive at the top, you know, they walk around as if they were holding watermelons under their arms, but their legs, well, they, they, they look like my legs, <laughs> um, and so the problem is that not only does it look silly, but we know that this person that I am, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a figment of my imagination. You know, they don't really exist. But anyways, this person not only looks silly, but we know that no matter how much they can bench press, because they have no leg muscles, they're weaker than they look, right? And uh, because of that, they can be easily thrown off balance. Now... Why am I talking about this? Well, because the same thing can happen to us when, uh, with our view of God. If we have an unbalanced view of who God is, we may end up worshiping a God of our own making and not the God of the Bible. If your view of God is not accurate, it's going to be unbalanced and you can be thrown off balance quite easily. And so, <clears throat> you see, uh, God, the Bible tells us, is love. And we know that, right? And, you know, sometimes you drive down the highway and you see God is love. Right? And, and I'm like, amen to that. God is love. Absolutely he is. He not only loves us, but he shows that he loves us by sending his son. God is love. But the Bible tells us that God is also holy. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy. There are those who emphasize one of God's attributes while neglecting the other. And so this ends up, uh, you know, given as an asymmetric view of God. And that can have terrible consequences in the life of the believer. Jackie Hill Perry, in her book, uh, the... I forget what the name of the book is. It's a great book in the holiness of God. She says this. She says, when we read the sentence, God is love, disconnected from the fundamental understanding that God is holy, 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 we interpret the text with our experiences as the commentary, using our own life as a, as, as a cross-reference, exegeting God with our world, we inevitably end up with a God made in our own image and then expect them to behave just like us. So church, you see, to say that God is love is true and appropriate, but if that is all we tell others about God, we are not presenting a full picture of who God really is. 
In the same way, if we overemphasize the fact that God is holy while neglecting his love for us, we will end up with a distortion of who God is. I had a young lady uh, that grew up going to a wonderful church uh, to of working for a ministry that we all respect. And she told me, Christian, you know, I realized I heard about God being holy every Sunday, but I don't remember one sermon about God's love. And that is also problematic. Well, church, if the church were to be a gym, today is leg day. <laughs> because we will talk about a topic that we don't often like to talk about. And yet, a good understanding of it, a good understanding of it will only strengthen our faith and expand our view of God. In our text this morning, we will see how an imbalanced view of God not only makes our faith wobbly, but can have terrible consequences in our lives. We will see how a good understanding of God's love always includes a good understanding of God's wrath. And I would go as far as to say that without wrath, there is no love. So, what do you say we jump into the text? We're going to read verses 1 and 2 from chapter 6. We are in chapter 6 of 2 Samuel. And it says this. It says, verse 1, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him in, uh, in Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Church, this is the word of God. How about we pray before we we talk about it heavenly father we come before you this morning lord with a desire to learn from you father we want to hear you we want to hear your word we want to submit to it and lord we pray that as we look at your scripture father that we would get a good view of who you are a balanced view of who you are heavenly father guard us lord from having uh, an asymmetric view of who you are help us see you as who you are revealed in scripture lord i pray uh, that if there's anything that I say this morning that does not go um, along with what Scripture teaches, if there's anything that I say that comes from my own understanding and not from your revealed word, Father, I pray that you that, that would fall to the ground and be forgotten. Father, make us men and women of the word that are able to understand, Lord, your word and to, um, to, to know what is it that comes from you. In the name of your Son, Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. So my first point this morning is this, that because He is holy, our worship of God is central to our lives. So here in the first two verses, we see David gathered, uh, he gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000 people he gathered. Last week, you may remember that we saw David finally being anointed by the elders of the tribes of Israel, and he was finally anointed as rec and recognized as king. And the first thing he did after that was that he went to fight against the Jebusites and defeat the Jebusites and the Philistines, the enemies of God. Today's passage will cover what happened right after that. And it starts with David gathering with the chosen men of Israel. First Chronicles 13 retells this very same story, but it gives us a little extra detail that we don't see in the text today. The author of First Chronicles um, tells us that David consults with other leaders of the people of Israel, and together they decide to go and seek the Ark of God. Now the Ark of God, or the Ark of the Covenant, as you maybe remember, is a, a box of acacia wood the size of a chest. And although it wasn't made as an image of God, it was uh, instructed by God that they make this box 
and that they carry it wherever they go. And that box is to represent God's presence among his people. So this Ark of the Covenant is God's gift to his people, a reminder of his presence among them. First Chronicles 13, 3 and 4 says this. It says, Then let us bring again the Ark of, of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul, which is heartbreaking. All the assembly agreed to do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So you see, during Saul's kingdom, you may remember there was a time when the Israelis had used the Ark of the Covenant as a lucky charm. They had brought it into battle thinking this is going to make us win because it's a lucky charm. And that led to some painful consequences. You, re- you may remember that after that, the Philistines actually captured the Ark, of, the Ark of God, thinking that they had not only conquered the people of Israel, but that they had, only, I mean, that they had also conquered their God, and they could add them to their collection. Now, this does not work very well for them. Uh, and I am sorry to do this to the team down here, but you may remember that one of the signs was that, that the people in the Philistines, I mean, they, they, they broke out with hemorrhoids. <laughs> Um, and so there was like a huge judgment coming to the Philistines. And so what ends up happening is that the Philistines play hot potato with the ark. And nobody wants it. And so what they do is they end up sending it back to Israel in a cart, which will be significant in just a moment. After that, Saul receives the, the ark, but he doesn't quite know what to do with the ark. And so what he does is that he brings it to the house of a guy called Abinadab and he leaves it there. From that point on, the ark of God was neglected by the people of Israel. You see, when you, like Saul, orient your life towards your own whims and desires, you will inevitably neglect the presence of God. I'm not sure that Saul ever intentionally decided to neglect the presence of God, but by following his own wisdom, by following his own desires, by doing his own thing, he ended up neglecting the presence of God. Now, David and the leaders of Israel, they have a good impulse right here. They get together and they say, you know what? We will bring the Ark of the Covenant. And that was a good impulse. David wanted to restore the worship of the Lord among the people of Israel, which was a great thing. Clearly, God was moving in the hearts of the Israelites because 30,000 people joined David in the trek from Jerusalem to the house of Abinadab. It's a nine to ten mile trek that they joined David because you know what? They wanted to restore the worship of the Lord among the people. And that's a great thing. They knew that the Ark of the Covenant had to be central to their lives, that the presence of God needed to be central to their lives. And so what he does is that he leads his people, David does, he leads his people in orienting their lives towards the presence of God. Church, this is a reminder for us this morning to orient our lives towards the presence of God. Let me ask you this morning, are you like David, walking towards the presence of God, actively seeking the presence of God, doing that which you think and know is is necessary for you to seek the presence of God? Or are you like Saul, following your own heart? And by doing so, neglecting God and His presence. Now, if I may, let me talk to the dads in the room this morning, just for a second. Dads, let me ask you, are you like David, 
pointing your family toward the presence of God. Notice how when David went, those around him followed him. So my question to you, Dad, this morning is, at home, are you leading your family towards the presence of God? Because it is your God-given responsibility to make sure that the presence of God is central to your family life. Now, I'm aware that not every household has a dad. Some of you are single moms. And I can only imagine how difficult it is to carry out this task as a single parent. But by this, I don't want you to be discouraged. As a matter of fact, I want to remind you this morning that you are not doing this alone. That Christ promised that he would be with us until the end of time and that that promise applies to you today and for the rest of your life. Parents, how are we pointing our children to the presence of God? Are we actively taking the steps like David to go towards the presence of God? Or are we like Saul getting busy with our own things and neglecting it. This leads us to verses 3 and 4. And here I want you to see that because God is holy, He determines how He is to be worshipped. Verses 3 and 4 say this. They says, And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out to the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. Now these two verses we just read can be easily skipped because they appear to only give us some unimportant details. But I want us to see this morning that even these seemingly unimportant verses have a lot to say. But in order for that to make sense, I want, us, um, I want, I want to explain something first. You see, God has not only commanded us to worship Him, but he has also told us how he is to be worshipped. Now, if we're honest, this really rubs us the wrong way, doesn't it? To think that there is a God, the idea of a God, that would demand worship, or that not only does he demand worship, but that he tells us exactly how he wants to be worshipped, it honestly really makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? I know for many, this very thought that God demands worship and that he tells us how to worship him, maybe a stumbling block. If this is you, if this bothers you, if this is a stumbling block for you, let me tell you this morning, you are not alone. The idea of a God that demands worship can be perceived as petty and capricious if it's misunderstood. Do you know who else felt that, felt that way? C.S. Lewis, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia and countless other books, felt the same way you may feel today. He actually called himself the most dejected and reluctant, and reluctant convert. That's how C.S. Lewis described himself. But in his book, Reflections on the Psalms, Lewis says, uh, Lewis says that he, uh, how, sorry, he says how he too was bothered by the idea that God would demand worship. He thought it made God sound, and these are his words, I quote, he says, like a, it, made sound, it made God sound like a vain woman wanting compliments. Only later, C.S. Lewis would come to realize that it is in the process of being worshipped that God communicates His presence to men. Isn't that beautiful? He then, uh, C.S. Lewis again, says, uh, says that even in the Old Testament, the essence of the sacrifice was not really that men gave bulls and goats to God, but that by their doing so, God gave Himself to men. 
in the central act of our own worship, of course, this is far clearer. There is manifestly, even physically, God who gives and, who re- and, who we, and we who receive. I'm sorry. Do you see what Lewis is saying? He's saying that in the very act of worship, our worship is not something that we are giving to God, but also God in that very act has given himself to us. Which is why the most loving thing God can do for us is to command us that we worship him. You see this, that God would be robbing us if he told us not to worship him. It would actually be unloving of him to not to ask us to worship him. He would be robbing us for that, from that blessing that only comes through our relationship with him. God then is not only loving and telling us to worship him, but he's also showing his love by telling us how to worship him. This is where these verses will make a little bit more sense. For those familiar with the law in the Old Testament, a few things would stick out from these two verses we just read. You see, in these verses, we can learn three things that will make more sense in just a second. Number one, we learned that the ark was being carried in a cart, a very new cart, it says. The ark, no, and the second thing we can learn is that the ark was being carried by the sons of Abinadab. And number three, it doesn't directly say this, but we can, from reading the story, we can see, and we'll see in a minute, that the ark was uncovered. Now, this is important because according to the law, we see that the people here were breaking the law in three different ways. First, the ark was not supposed to be moved in a cart. In the, in the, in the, in the Old Testament, if you were to look at the, of the law of God, it was, the, the Bible tells us that, it was supposed, that the ark was supposed to be carried by men whenever it was moved. Also, it wasn't just supposed to be moved by any men. It was specifically to be carried by the Kohathites, who were a subgroup of the Levites. So there was a specific group of men that could carry the ark. And the third way in which they were breaking the law was that the ark was uncovered, because the ark was to be covered with goatskin, since even to look or to touch the ark was to be punished with death. You see, when it comes to the worship of God, obedience is more important than convenience. Let me ask you this morning, and I don't want to pick on you on the live stream, but have you considered that obedience is more important than convenience? And I love that we have a live stream. My family is not here. My wife and kids are sick. They're at home and they're able to watch. My family in Guatemala is able to watch me preach this morning because of God's grace, God's common grace of live stream. But can I ask you, if you're on the live stream, if you are watching us today and Sunday after Sunday from home, instead of being here gathered with other saints, would you consider obedience over convenience? I'm saying this with love. We want to see you. We want to be here. And, and, and there is something about worshiping with other believers that cannot be replaced with a screen. Guys, no matter what good intentions the people of Israel had in this story, they were violating the law of God. Just to clarify, I'm not saying the live stream is violating the law of God. I'm just inviting you to consider that maybe you should be coming here if at all possible. Now, after the, uh, the, the reason I said earlier that, that, that being put in a cart was going to be um, 
important is this, because after the people of Israel saw that the Philistines sent the Ark of the Covenant uh, in a cart, they decided, you know what? The law tells us to carry the Ark of God, but it's just easier to put it in a cart. So let's make a new cart. It's going to be, I don't know, the, the, the Ark Mobile, whatever you want to call it, and we're going to move it like that. It's going to be nice. It's going to, you know, we're going to, it's going to be expensive, and we're just going to put it in a cart. You see, maybe it was a good idea, but it was a disobedient idea. This mistake would prove to be costly, as we will read in just a moment. Church, good intentions are never enough when it comes to approaching God in worship. When we approach God in worship, we're not just approaching some big guy upstairs. We're not just approaching some, some, some good force out there. We are not approaching just a God in general. We are approaching the God of the Bible who in His kindness has revealed Himself to us in His Word. Church, it matters how we approach God. He cares how we approach Him. You know, a few weeks ago, while we were visiting Guatemala, I think uh, we've mentioned this before, but my mom, uh, who loves to spoil her grandchildren, actually arranged for my son Tiago to meet the president of Guatemala. Um, now, the only reason she was able to do this is because she works for the government, um, but she was able to, to, to arrange this meeting with the president. And so uh, it was Tiago's first time meeting a president. I don't know about you, but we don't often meet presidents. Uh, and so uh, before we meet him, I'm talking to him and I'm like training. I'm like, buddy, please make sure whenever you see the president, please stand up, you know, when he comes up. Please look him in the eye. Please don't whisper when he asks you a question. Like, speak to him loudly. Please make sure he can hear you. Please make sure you're respect respectful. And I had this whole list of how he had to approach the president. I was trying to make him understand that meeting the president was a big deal. Now, during this meeting, the president was so kind to him. He was so friendly that it was really easy to forget that he is a president. Thankfully, Tiago did great, and I'm really proud of him. You see, when we meet presidents, when we meet people in positions of authority, we know that there's a protocol that is to be followed. We know there are right ways and wrong ways of approaching people in authority. But often, when we come to God, we approach Him as if He were just some sort of cosmic butler and not the King of the universe. We approach God with a list, with a to-do list, instead of approaching Him with humility. We think He is at our beck and call, when in reality, we ought to approach Him with fear and reverence. Church, the fact that God is good, gracious, kind, patient, and benevolent does not mean that we can throw reverence to the side when we approach Him. Mikkel, thank you for your tears. When, thank you for being moved by the fact that God is good, gracious, patient, and abounding in steadfast love. He should move our hearts. You see, our God is a holy God. And flippancy and familiarity reveal only a lack of knowledge of who he truly is. Now we will see in a second how dangerous familiarity and flippancy about the things of God can be a very dangerous thing for us. Would you join me in verse 5 as we read verses 5 through 7? And here I want us to see how because he is holy, we approach God with joyful reverence. 
Verse 5 says this. It says, And David and the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. Church, what a sobering story. What a heartbreaking story. Church, here we get to the place where we can see the danger of having an unbalanced theology of God. We see two things about the presence of God here that are simultaneously true. Number one, we see that we have to approach, we should approach God with joy. The celebration we see here is appropriate. But the second thing we see is that as we approach God, we need to do it with reverence as well, not flippancy. Church, it is appropriate to approach God with joy. As the children of God, we should find joy in the presence of God. Notice that the people of Israel did not consider worship a boring ritual. It was a cause for celebration because they knew that God was among them. We too ought to approach God with joy and with expectation. We should be thrilled about the fact that God has saved us. And when we were blind, he gave us sight. And when we were bound, he made us free. When we were dead, he gave us life. Church, we should celebrate. And we should sing, and we should clap, and we should celebrate for sure. The way the Israelites celebrated the coming of the presence of God among his people is the kind of spirit in which we should approach God in worship. The problem with joy, though, is that it has a cheap counterfeit. And the counterfeit is flippancy. And flippancy is a dangerous thing. Here at Trinity... Let us make sure that as a church we guard our hearts against flippancy, against being um, against an irreverent familiarity with the things of God. Church, this should be a joyful place. But let's make sure that even in our joy that we are reverent. Now the second thing I want us to see here is that it is dangerous to approach God flippantly. In the second part of the, of the passage we just read, we saw a tragic story, the story of Uzzah. It is a tragic story that could have been easily avoided. Remember earlier that I mentioned how the law told us exactly how the ark was supposed to be transported, carried by the Kohathites and covered with a goatskin? Well, had they obeyed the law, this tragedy could have been completely avoided. But you see, Uzzah had grown up in the house of Abinadab, He grew up around the ark. He grew up around the things of God. Uzzah was familiar with the ark of the covenant, but at some point his familiarity turned into flippancy. And that is a dangerous thing. Church, the way we as Christians talk about God and approach God ought to be reverent. I worry at times when I see the name of Jesus just thrown out You know, you see t-shirts, I need a latte, a nap, and a little Jesus. Right, and that's silly. I mean, I saw a a, a politician with a big truck that says, Jesus, guns, and babies. Church, that is not the way we approach God. Jesus is not a tool for us to be throwing around. He's not an identity marker for us. 
He is the Son of God and, I, and our Savior. When it was time to move the ark, Uzzah and his brother probably thought, you know what, we got it. We've been around the ark for years, so we know how to handle it. We got it. So they're on their way. They loaded the ark into their nifty new car and started rolling. Unfortunately for Uzzah, the oxen stumbled and their cool new cart was about to fall. So what does Uzzah do? He put out his hand so the ark wouldn't fall. It sounds to me that what Uzzah did was just an instinctual thing. He just reached out to make sure it didn't fall. And yet the simple error ended up costing him his life. Church, do you see why it is important not to neglect the teaching of the law of God? As Christians, we often grow lax and cold towards the word of God. And this can prove to be a deadly mistake. Now, can I talk to those of you, kids, young men, young women, who are growing up in the church? Do you see how the neglect of the Word of God and familiarity with the things of God can be dangerous for our souls? Growing up here, growing up in this church, you might be familiar with the things of God. You may know the flow of the service. You may know the songs. You may speak Christianese. You may know when to say amen. And you might even uh, be able to guess some of the things that we will say on Sunday. And if your heart isn't engaged, that is a very dangerous place to be. Children, young men, young women, please listen to me. Guard your heart. Guard your heart against flippancy. Otherwise your heart can grow cold, stale, indifferent, and eventually flippant towards the things of God. Just this past week, I have a dear friend, a young man that I love, who's going through a very difficult time and, and paying for the consequence of his sin. And, and, and he told me, Christian, I grew up in church my whole life. And you know what? I let my heart harden against the things of God. Church, let us guard our hearts. Let us guard our heart this morning. And let me ask you, not only the kids, not only the young men and women, but let me ask you all, where are you today? Where was your heart when the band began to play or when Justin exhorted us and called us to worship? Were you flippant or amazed? Were you indifferent or hungry? Were you familiar or freshly humbled to stand in the presence of our holy God? And I want to ask you, if you do recognize this flippancy in your heart, there's hope. Just bring it to the Lord. Just confess your sin and ask that he would stare your heart towards him in worship. That he would grow your affections toward him again. Church, it is a blessing. I have the blessing of having grown up in the church. And though I see that there are some dangers in growing up in the church, let me tell you, I would never change it for the world. So young men, young women, guard your heart. Engage your heart. Don't just endure worship. Engage with worship. Praise your God. The God that you know is real and that loves you. Worship Him. This leads us to our next and last point. I want us to read verses 8 through 11. And this 
Oh, and here I want you to see that because God is holy, we approach him in joyful submission. Verse 7 says this. It says, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And I know I'm repeating myself. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And, the place, uh, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, uh, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Verse 12 says this, And he was told King David, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. So let's talk about this. How about we talk about the elephant in the room? This is a crazy story, isn't it? Honestly, it's a crazy story. This guy was literally just trying to make sure that the Ark of the Covenant didn't fall into the mud and God strikes him dead. You see, a superficial reading of this story might lead us to think that God is being heavy-handed in this instance. It might make you think that God maybe overreacted a little. Remember how at the beginning when I mentioned that if we disconnect God's love from His holiness, we end up expecting Him to act like we do? Well, He doesn't do that. You see, what God was doing here, though it was shocking, it was an act of mercy towards His people. In Scripture, there are several instances when God reminds His people of His holiness and how to approach Him appropriately. He did this with the sons of Aaron who decided to worship Him with strange fire and they died. He then did this with, uh, here with Uzzah and later in the New Testament, He will do it again with Ananias and Sapphira. You see, these three instances were all at crucial, crucial moments of huge importance in the history of the people of God. And each time, God makes sure to display His holiness, to, ref, to remind His people of who He is. Now this shocks us, and maybe it rubs us the wrong way. And yet, how we interpret God's actions in this instance says more about our limited view of God than it says about Him. In his commentary of this passage, Richard Phillips says this. He says, If the shock of Uzzah's death offends us, as it did David, the most likely explanation is that we have not comprehended the enormous offense of our sin or the perfect holiness of God that cannot abide such desecration as we have committed. R.F.C. Sproul, the famous... A uh, theologian uh, similarly told us in, in, in his book, The Holiness of God, that this story offends us because we think God owes us perpetual mercy. You see, God is holy. And to ask him to withhold justice and judgment is to ask him to go against his very own nature. And because God is holy and incapable of sin, we know that this story, we can rest assured that in this instance, and in every other instance, God did not sin. Because God is holy, we can read this story and know that God didn't sin against Uzzah. 
Now, let me ask you this morning. How do you feel about God's wrath? Are you mad about it? David was. I understand that the topic of God's holiness and His wrath is one of those topics that makes us uncomfortable. But if we want to have an accurate view of God, we need not only to accept it, but to find beauty in it. Because in the end, our God and every one of His attributes is glorious and beautiful. God's wrath is not a wrinkle in His character or a defect in His personality. God's wrath is a beautiful attribute because without it, there is no real love. If you serve a God without wrath, you are not serving the God of the Bible, but a God of your own making that happens to agree with everything that you do. Why do I say that without wrath, there is no love? Let me explain. If I were walking, if, if I were walking with my wife down the street... And someone just disrespects her. Let's say someone walks past us and spits, her, spits in her face. Would you think I love her if I think that's no big deal, man? You just keep going. No, right? But the amount of love that I have for my wife will, be, you know, will, will come out in wrath whenever she's being disrespected. Right? And so... Our wrath, or God's wrath, not our wrath, because ours is sinful. Uh, God's is not. But God's wrath, it's, it's big. But it's consistent with His love for us. Without wrath, there is no love. You see, anger, like David, David got mad about this, right? He, he said, the Bible tells us that he, David was angry. I want us to talk about this because anger is not the appropriate response to God's wrath. David did not like the fact that God struck down Uzzah. So much so that the Bible tells us he was mad. David was angry, maybe because he too was presuming in God's forgiveness or had grown too familiar with God. You see, God in his mercy was reminding David and the people of Israel that he is holy. This reminder, though, was not easy for David or for anyone present. So let me ask you, if anger is not the appropriate response then what is? Fear, maybe? Is fear the right response? Well, fear in itself is an incomplete response to God's wrath. Let me explain. In verse 9, we see that David's second response to God's wrath uh, and display of holiness was fear. It says David was afraid. And so what did he do? He walked away. He left the ark at Obed-Edom's house. And this kept David away from the presence of God for some amount of time. The Bible tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? The Bible calls us consistently to fear the Lord. In uh, the Bible in the New Testament will say, you know, to, it will tell us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. But this is not the fear that David was acting on. Because you see, throughout Scripture, there are many instances when God displays His holiness... We see it, for example, in Mount Sinai with the people of Israel, with Moses and the people of Israel. God is displaying his glory in Mount Sinai, and there's thunder, and there's clouds, and the people of Israel are petrified. We see God's display of holiness in Isaiah's vision when he falls on his face and he says, Woe is me, woe is me, woe is me. And later in Revelation, we will see that when John sees the vision of God, he too falls on his face, 
petrified. But you know what each of these displays of God's holiness have in common? That they are followed by fear not. You see, a good understanding of God's holiness does not push us away from God, but it pulls us in. God's holiness, when rightly understood, will draw you into Him, not away from Him. And so what is the right response to God's holiness? And I would say that joyful submission is the correct response to God's wrath. Later, at the end of the, of the passage we read this morning, we see that David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom that, uh, to the city of David with rejoicing. After a while, David realized that if he wants God, he needs to submit not to an image of God that he had made on his own mind, but he needs to submit to God in his fullness. When our view of God is limited to only one of his attributes, we don't truly know God. So, David goes back to the house of Obed-Edom to get the ark. But this time he approaches the presence of God appropriately. Notice that David's view of God has been adjusted. And far from him being intimidated by God, this full view of God causes David to rejoice. You see, when we have an accurate and balanced view of who God is, this will cause us to draw near to God in joyful submission and not to keep God at an arm's length. You and I, led by ignorance or pride maybe, we all, like Uzzah, have acted arrogantly when approaching God. Paul tells us in Romans 1.21 that, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give, him th- or give things to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Church, we have acted arrogantly against God when approaching Him. And this rebellion led us all to spiritual death. And if we have an imbalanced or incomplete view of God, we, like David, might be tempted to think that God is overreacting in this story. But the beauty of the Bible is that it adjusts our view of God. Whenever we are familiar with the Word of God, we will be familiar with a full picture of who God is. Yes, He is thrice holy, and He is transcendent and wholly separate. But this same God, because of the great love with which He loved us, offered us salvation. Like Uzzah, we all have reached out and touched the ark of God with filthy hands. We have despised God by having a low view of who He is. And just like Uzzah was struck down by the wrath of God, we too deserve that very wrath. Notice, I'm not saying people in the world deserve that wrath. I'm saying we all deserved that wrath. The difference between us and Uzzah is that for those who have called upon the name of Jesus for salvation, in His grace, Jesus received the, the, the wrath that we deserved. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. But I just want to say this before we end. Some of you know that. Some of you have called on the name of Jesus for salvation. And this story should remind us of the the holy God that we serve and should should, should encourage, encourage our hearts to approach Him regularly, reverently in worship. 
But there are some of you who have not called upon the name of Jesus. And if you approach God with filthy hands, like Uzzah, what you deserve is death. But we're here this morning to tell you that you too can draw near to God. If you only call upon the name of Jesus, if you confess your sin and call upon the name of Jesus as your salvation, you too can be saved of this wrath. You know, the beauty of the, of the New Testament is that now we are told to draw near to the throne of grace. To confidently draw near to the throne of grace. Not confidently in ourselves, not with confidence in what we've done for God, but confidence in what Jesus Christ has done for us. We get to draw near before the throne of grace. Rather than hearing, keep your distance and don't, don't touch, we are told, draw near to the throne of grace. What changed between 2 Samuel 6 and Hebrews? Christ's death has cleansed us all that we might approach him now. And so with that in mind, would you stand with us and worship the God, our holy God? Would you worship him with us this morning?